Hi, I'm Agree. I'm Harrison. And this is Bottom Line Design. And today we have on Eli Woolery, who is a low-key, high-key uh, legend in the design community. Um, uh, and for those of you who don't know about Eli, I mean, uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I like low-key, high-key. I don't know if I've ever encountered that descriptor before, but that's good. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm Eli. I co-host the Design Better podcast, uh, teach product design up at Stanford for the past 10 years. And um, yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of time at kind of the intersection of design and entrepreneurship and startups. Amazing. Amazing. So tell us like, uh, there's actually, there's so much to get into. It almost, <laughs> it almost feels like it's like, like untangling like a Gordian knot. Right? And you're being like, very modest. <laughs> yourself, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to bore people. So. Fair, fair. Um, well, why don't you start with actually like uh, what what aspect of design um, are you teaching at Stanford right now? Like where does your like education practice really like focus? Yeah, so I teach in the product design program, which recently got sort of redesigned itself and rebranded as just design. So historically, the program started back in the late 1960s in the mechanical engineering department. So as you might imagine, very focused on physical product design. Digital product design wasn't so much of a thing back then. And, um, you know, over the years that shifted. And I would say since I started teaching, you know, 10 years ago, there was a split in a student project. So the students come up with a capstone project over the two quarters and it's of their own choosing. It could be a physical product, digital product, could even be just an experience or, or something else that's designed. But in any case, the, the, sh the shift happened where when I started, I would say is maybe 70, 80% physical products, 20% digital. And then that over time, that kind of flipped. And the interesting thing is this last year, it kind of flipped again. So the majority of the students were working on physical products. And I think my, my hunch or hypothesis is that just the students live in such a, you know, online world overall that they just want to do something tangible. They want to have their hands on something. They want to experience like what it's like to, to develop a physical product. So anyway, that's what I've been observing. And the program itself, you know, it's very focused on kind of human-centered design, this idea that to design good products, you need to be able to interact with the people you're designing for and understand their needs and where they're coming from and their challenges. Um, again, in the 1960s, this was sort of a novel idea, like engineers back then really thought more about the object and how do I design a really good object, one that, you know, can withstand X amount of forces or work underwater or whatever in space, whatever the case may be, less so about the human factors. But this was the first program really of its kind to really focus on human factors and design. And that's still kind of the core of what we do. So, so there's a, there's a question that popped in my head as you were, as you were explaining the intellectual history of the program, um, which is that you mentioned how like uh, your, the focus has shifted more towards human centered design. Right. And like how before that, uh, the engineers were focused on the design of the object mm -hmm. um, in your mind, because uh, I know you you've written extensively about design theory, um, obviously, like uh, think about it, like quite a bit have, have depth of thought like there. Do you see design as uh, the subset of engineering that interfaces with like the human component hmm. uh, or do you actually see uh do you see engineering and design as, as separate disciplines? Um, yeah, I think it could be really either. I mean, certainly design and design engineering. I was a design engineer for a number of years. That is a subset technically of a mechanical engineering discipline. But but when you talk about design more broadly, obviously it sort of depends on what you're talking about designing, whether that's a digital interface or, you know, a bicycle or a fishing rod or, you know, <laughs> name whatever type of object or experience or, you know, the, the type of thing that you're trying to design. And so I don't, I don't think intrinsically they have to be separated. And in some cases they're very intertwined. And I think, you know, I, I would say a lot of very good designers that I know have some amount of education and experience in both those, the sort of more technical engineering side as well as maybe the more human-centered and also aesthetic side of design. That's something else I could talk about because I think there's there's an important component there about aesthetics and design. But, um, but yeah, I, I don't see them as either uh, totally separate or totally together. It kind of depends on the context. 
It's funny, like, hearing you speak about HCI because at RISD when I was there, like, there was, there was a huge gap between digital product design and the industrial design department that I was in. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I found myself not really being able to focus in class because it was just in pure industrial design. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, I had a lot of resentment and guilt uh, and shame actually trying to force feed myself industrial design as it's classically taught. Yeah when really the only thing I was interested in was designing interfaces for this new thing called the iPhone, mm -hmm. you know, and the professors weren't really supportive. Do you find that maybe something is happening in the realm of like sound design, AR, VR, you know, because today digital product design is the norm at schools, mm -hmm. but maybe there's some kids out there that are like, not being taught that next gen design those next gen design disciplines yeah yeah i mean it's a it's an interesting topic and i think it's one that honestly i think our program has struggled with over the years you know what is the core audience essentially they were teaching to what are the students interested in what are the skills that they should have when they graduate and because um at least where we are at stanford it's a liberal arts institution that the students have a very kind of breadth of core classes they need to take. And so we're really only teaching them for the last two years of their career. And so we have kind of a limited amount of units that we can take over <laughs> within our major and, you know, expose them to the kind of things we want. But I think, um, you know, in my mind, the thing that we can do is equip somebody to come out of the program and be able to learn any kind of design that they're interested in, right? And there's that there's some core kind of fundamental principles that we talked about, you know, the, the human side of things. But there's also, I think, and this is something, honestly, I think we've missed a little bit in the last few decades, but there there is an aesthetic component to the design that I think is important. Um, there's some other things too. So I think what we're trying to do with the program now is we've sort of divided it into these different verticals where students can focus on design for digital products or design for physical products or sort of the more research like UX research uh, orientation oriented types of design. Um, and so that, that tries to kind of address that a bit. But as you mentioned, there's these, you know, new technologies coming out where, you know, what, what is design going to look like in five years or so when AI is yeah. more capable than it even is right now. And it's already doing amazing things. Uh, you know, what is that going to enable for, for our students? So I think, yeah, we're trying to constantly evolve, but there's some core principles that we try to have the students leave with. That makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting, you know, to to hear you talk about they have this core curriculum and then there's only so many credits that you can take away from that. It, there's been so much focus on STEM, you know, um, but, you know, back when, you know, back again, when I was at school, um, I teamed up with uh, John Maida and Richard Saul Werman to do like stem to steam mm -hmm. do you find that steam is actually picking up steam <laughs> <laughs> uh i hope so i mean th I, that part of it i can kind of relate more to my kids experience in you know in elementary school and now my daughter's in middle school and it seems like there is a pretty good emphasis on the on the a part of that equation the, you know the art side of that because i do think it's it's core and it's important and and relating it to our program, when I went through the program back in the 90s, there was a, a real focus on art, essentially design, design as it sort of like falls under the umbrella of the arts. And um, the core kind of professor taking that over, was, his name is Matt Kahn, and he was trained, you know, very much in the kind of the Bauhaus school of education, oh, yeah. where, you know, where there's this, there's these sort of design fundamentals that you should know and these different processes. and. Okay. And I think, you know, sometimes that was a little painful to go through, but it was also very helpful. And I came out of it, at least I wasn't like a, an expert in typography or anything like that, but at least I understood some of the, you know, the fundamentals and what you should know or, or where to learn more. So that's that side of things I think is really important. And as we look forward toward, you know, you know, what does human creativity look like in the age of AI? I think, a, you know, a chunk of what we're going to 
become is sort of editors and curators where we're having yes. AI execute things for us, but we have to have the aesthetic kind of knowledge and the technical knowledge to be able to edit those things. And also the human touch uh, to create things that aren't completely soulless. So yeah, I think those that, that A part of Steam is important, very important. And And so then like, what what recommendation do you have for someone who uh maybe they aren't able to uh get to Stanford's uh design department um but they want to learn about design like how how would you recommend somebody enter into teaching themselves a discipline hmm. well first i think there's any number of programs out there that are really good it's not not just stanford that's taking kind of a multidisciplinary approach to design but if you're let's say outside the the sort of confines of higher education and we could even have a debate about whether that's appropriate for everybody like i don't think college and you know four-year college or grad school is right for everyone and there's other ways to become educated and be really successful but um you know there's a wealth of free online stuff obviously out there there's also free courses that you can take through stanford and other places these you know these MOOCs they call them forget what it stands for but you know essentially open online courses um, and so again, the, the job would be for you to sort of like experiment, but also kind of curate, identify people that you think are worth following and are skilled. Um, you know, I, I we spent a portion, portion of my time in my prior job and envision was building up this library about sort of design education that was fundamental. And it was more, it was a little more oriented towards folks who are, you know, at least in not necessarily mid-career, but maybe, you know, have been working in the field for a little while and they there want to elevate their design skills, but also elevate design within their organizations. They might be somewhere where design isn't valued. So a lot of what we were building was like help you, you know, spread, you know, design thinking and the embrace of design and design as a strategic value over an organization. And I think what you're talking toward is maybe more of a junior designer or somebody who's just entering the field and like how should they get grounded in the basics. Mm. But I think there there's like, Lots of great folks out there. I'll mention one who we just had on our show recently. Um, he runs a site called Shift Nudge. Uh, it goes by MDS, and it's a essentially a UI course, but it's just very well done and well produced. And if you're just like trying to get into the basics of sort of visual design and UI design, that's a really great one to check out. Um, if you're a little further along, if you want to learn about things like design systems, um, there's a guy named Dan Mall who developed something called Design Systems it's University. It was amazing. Awesome. We just had him on an AMA. So there's, there's, we're kind of, in some ways, we're we're moving away from the in, this institutional approach where somewhere somewhere you go somewhere like Stanford to get education, education to more of it's a little more fragmented. But identifying individuals like the folks I mentioned who are very skilled and also good teachers, but can help you kind of get a grounding in the basics of some of these. Thanks. Wow. So, I mean, okay, this is a question. This is a very natural opportunity to ask you a question that uh, that we sort of like we're wondering going into this, which is uh, it, it's a topic that's visited between us. Yeah, quite, <laughs> quite often, um, pretty much since we met, uh, which is like, you know how you mentioned like uh, at Envision when um, when you were there uh, helping out, like uh, set up this library on design education. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like a lot of it was also for stakeholders, not just people who uh, were, were going to be doing the designs, but right. sort of collaborating or consuming. Yeah. Um, the thing that we've observed um, is that it seems in the last decade, especially as more and more of our lives are being uh, ruled and governed by interfaces, that uh, the world is becoming or people are generally becoming more like design awakened or design aware. Mm -hmm. um, and as that as that happens, that people realize that like uh, design is its own sort of like invisible matter or like an invisible kind of like force that can um, that can coordinate, orchestrate, structure, frame all these things. Um, do you think that as design's role in, in our lives is growing, that the design discipline itself will grow as something distinct, similar mm -hmm. to engineering? Or do you think mm -hmm. that it's actually going to become more like an underlying pillar or a principle that gets embedded across all disciplines the way like, mm -hmm. say, empathy or, or good communication would be? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it could, it might not be an either or, right? Like, I think there's there's a there's an opportunity for design to become like you said just every, every discipline to become more design aware to have access to tools 
that help execute better designs. We've we already touched on this this idea of AI and AI as a co-pilot, and I imagine AI, you know, to some degree playing that role too. Um, and then there's also I think going to be opportunity for you know specialization in design careers um, as we go forward, where you can find yourself you know very deep in a discipline that's pretty design centric and still offer a lot of value. I, I, I think it could really go both ways at the same time. Um, you know, I think in the opportunistic scenario, in my mind is that we, I'll frame it in kind of the reverse. So I've, I feel like I have a, a pretty extensive background in design. I've, I've dabbled and, or at least dabbled and or worked in a lot of different mediums from physical to, to digital, to print, et cetera. Um, you know, along the way, I, I have gained some technical knowledge too, but I'm not a developer. Like I don't, I've never sat down and like worked on an app front end and back end, uh, all the way through. But with AI now, I feel like I could essentially do that on my own with my design yeah. skills, plus chat GPT and other tools I could build at an app and the end. And so to me, I think the optimistic scenario is wh whichever side of the equation you're on, if you are. A designer who's maybe less technically skilled you can use these tools to develop a product or if you're a developer that has less of a design foundation you can do the same so i think there's sort of a democratization of creation in a lot of ways and it could go it could go the other way too i think we could discuss like the, the problems that the, these tools can, could could cause too but i think to me there's a lot of op opportunity as well oh for sure i mean in that sense it actually feels a lot like writing Right. Mm -hmm. Where uh, you can imagine there was probably like some turning point, maybe around like Gutenberg time, roughly, that like uh, knowing how to write well suddenly gave you a massive asymmetric advantage mm -hmm. uh, that like 50 years prior, like best shot that you had was you'd be doing like illuminations in a monastery somewhere. I mean, yeah. there were there's there's accounts of like uh, slave owners finding out that some of their slaves knew how to write. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and that was like a huge. That was like, like a huge no-no. Yeah, you know, so yeah. Power. yeah. But secretly, they would employ these slaves, and then during the day, it's like they weren't human anymore. Suddenly, yeah. But you know, to this, to the slaves themselves, they were able to coordinate, mm -hmm. maybe coordinate an escape plan, maybe coordinate. So I, you know, this topic of is design a discipline, or is design something that we can build up in all of us as a, a, a just as an ethos mm -hmm. right and like you know i'd love to hear more on you know where is it that you know your common like your your average tech startup founder you know maybe they're not finding themselves in figma or if they are it's just in the commenting section how else are they supposed to touch design for the very first time yeah, I think there's a number of ways. I mean, one thing is thinking about the different sort of components of design. If we think of it also, like you mentioned empathy before and understanding your customers or your users and, and talking to them and doing that kind of research work. And, um, you know, that that's, that's certainly a part of design that maybe is overlooked by, you know, certain, certain types. If you're especially very early on in like the process of um, starting a company, I think, you know, backing up to my own experience, I, I went through uh, kind of a startup accelerator. It wasn't like YC. I know you mentioned some a good chunk of your audience is coming through YC. It was a very different setup where you apply as an individual and they hook you up with a team and then you go work on business problems um, with some funding. And um, it also had as its sort of foundation, this design thinking approach. And while it was inter an interesting experiment, I think in some ways it was flawed because if you're starting if you're starting without a real understanding of the problem space, and as as you both know, being in the startup world, I would say the majority of successful startups start from a place where the founders understand the need. If they haven't experienced it themselves, they're very intimate with, you know, let's say it's a SaaS tool or more of a, you know, enterprise tool. They kind of understand the problem or the technical problem versus like going out and doing research and talking to people and trying to come up with an idea, which is sort of what this program was trying to have us do. I think it's tough, you know, for a number of reasons. One is if you're, if you're going out and kind of like looking for problems, 
you're probably not going to be as intrinsically passionate as, as if you had encountered it yourself, right? And we're trying to right. essentially build something for yourself. I think that's the way a lot of really start successful products start. That said, once you have those first few iterations and you're building for an audience outside, like yourself and your friends, going out and talking to people and understanding like how this product fit in, fits into their lives becomes very important. Um, and that goes beyond just obviously the, the UI and interface part of it. Um, and then, you know, I guess in a less Im impactful way to maybe, um, you, you could as a technical, more of a technical co-founder get a bit more oriented just around the basics. I know there's, there's little like email courses around this. I'm blanking on the name, but just kind of the design fundamentals around typography and things like that. It'll just make you more informed when you're giving feedback to your designer. If you have a designer on your team at that point. So, yeah. Yeah, I always I always tell uh, founders like during some of these discovery calls, like if you're design curious, there's a lot of these guys, they just don't know about design right off the bat. So mm -hmm. they come to us and, you know, we we help shepherd that process along. And I always say, like, pick up two books, one, any any Edward Tufte book, mm -hmm. any Edward Tufte book, and then Don Norman's The Design of Everyday Things. And I almost feel like it's like uh, Don Norman will satisfy the emotional side. And Tufty will uh, satisfy the the logical side, and yeah. together you'll have a wise mind around design for the very first time. Yeah, you know, totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. And definitely. then, and then my my sort of like uh, weirdo bizarre recommendation uh, uh, on top of that is like go to Amsterdam or Tokyo, mm -hmm. <laughs> and just like take a little bit of time to to introspect within yourself. Why do things feel different? How did mm -hmm. Anton describe it? A Anton it, it described was, it. It was a yeah. pixel perfect city. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One mm -hmm. of the designers in our guild described Tokyo as a yeah. pixel perfect city, which uh, is, is yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, Why? I think travel in general is such a wonderful way to just kind of reset your expectations and understand that like not everybody you design for is going to have the same background as you or experiences or environment as you, you know, if you're building a product that's going to be used around the world. So yeah, I think it's great. Where do you find that you're getting a lot of your inspiration these days? Because I mean, you are someone that is so prolific in this world. Like you, you come across, I'm sure people are now sending you things versus you going after things, but are there any secret places that we should know about where mm. you're pulling inspiration or is it everything from like, you know, the surfing to the photography that you do on the side? Yeah, gosh, if I gave away the secrets, it wouldn't wouldn't be secret anymore. Um, <laughs> I, That's yeah. okay. We have like most. <laughs> no, I, I, um, you know, I'm trying to think if there's places I go regularly. Honestly, this is sound weird, like being a designer, but one of my favorite places to go to learn, just check out new things, is Hacker News. You know, I, I'm there. I go there all the time, and a lot of it's technical and not as interesting to me. But then there's you know oftentimes random things that are just really cool and creative and um often but not always the the intel you know the comments are pretty intelligent sometimes a little you know facetious and fractious but um less so than a lot of the internet kind of forums that you find yourself on so that's one place i go often for inspiration um yeah and then just just in the course of interviewing people for our show we almost always end with like what's inspiring you right now and so, you know, if I'm talking to um, an Ed Catmull or, you know, uh, David Sedaris, although I don't think we had a chance to ask him that question, I'm curious to see, like, what's really inspiring them. Actually, he did mention a writer named Susan Orland, but what's, what's inspiring to them right now? And that's sort of a kind of a constant way to get new things in my, in my life. Incredible. Incredible. And so, like, okay, I, I do want to also, like, um examine a little bit more like this this journey that design's like gone on uh you know all of us have sort of brought up in different ways like the last decade and and sort of uh the role of the iPhone and mobile in um maybe it may end up being that besides like sort of continuous connected compute is like causing a design awakening among so many so many people um you know you you mentioned how like uh when you were uh, working at Envision, um, that there was this, uh, the library for like design education, which I think like given, you know, given when, when Envision really like sort of came on the scene, like it makes a lot of sense why like 
that would have been like a natural dovetail with like what uh what the community that envision was trying to serve needed like can you tell me a little bit about how you've seen that community um uh the design community in in tech itself sort of like evolve um since like envision started and like where where you think things are now versus where they were when when like envision really was like one of the first design startups right where yeah. it's about design it's not like photoshop which is design was this narrow use case across so many other applications yeah. Envision was i feel like the first startup that really came on the scene was like and we're it, about and design. it spoke to the tech world for the yeah first exactly time. similarly like to how like figma comments spoke to people in tech teams outside of the design department mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> Yeah, I think they were one of the first, and I was certainly a fan, you know, before I joined the company, I was using them for my own work, and I liked, you know, the simplicity of their approach, and I think, you know, one thing that has involved, which we've already touched on a little bit, is, let's say, rewind to 2011, a lot of companies out there hadn't really fully understood the value of design. They sort of saw it as a bolt-on at the end, like... Okay, we'll mm -hmm. build this product and we'll bring the designers in and they'll make it look good, you know, at the very end, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, kind of the opposite, ideally, of the approach you want to take where, where you start with the idea of we're going we're gonna to build a prototype, we're going to understand, like, who we're building this for, build a prototype, iterate on that. You know, that's, it shares some things with, like, a lean startup approach, honestly. You know, there's, 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 there's a lot of overlap there, but this idea of kind of building and learning and iterating, um, you know, that's core to the whole design thinking, design sprint methodologies. Um, and I think in the, you know, I would say back then that wasn't a super common thing outside of the kinds of tech companies that had already at that point embraced design. I think by then Google was already starting to embrace design. You know, we've had um, Irene Au and she's a friend and taught with me before, but she was one of Google's first like real design leader hires and when she talked to i can't remember if it was larry sergey one of them she was like what's your ideal user experience and he's like uh pine <laughs> and pine if you don't remember it which you might not was like a unix based terminal for which i used back in the day to access my email back in the 90s just command line interface he's like that's the optimal <laughs> user experience she's like huh <laughs> okay i i can i can see why you think that way it's very efficient but Honestly, there's not a ton of people outside your engineering crowd that are going to agree with you there. <laughs> so they, you know, they had to understand that, like, yes, there's efficiency. Efficiency is very important. But there's plenty of people out there who need more affordances, need to understand. They need, like, they don't care so much about the density of information as, like, the hierarchy and importance. Like, my screen could be filled top to bottom with my Gmail and subject lines, and that's very efficient and a good use of space. But gosh, it's hard to pick out like what, what are the important emails here, read through them and things like that. So even he started to understand and embrace things like white space and other kind of design um, uh, fundamentals. And then the company headed more in that direction. But again, this is, let's say 2010, 11-ish companies. Mm -hmm. You're talking to like, like a healthcare company or a bank or any of these other large institutions, they were just like, design you know what we have a design team that we hand our they design our brochures for us what, what more do yeah. we need it for so they just didn't <laughs> really get it we? <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> so yeah so i think that's a, been a big change over the last decade or so you know like just i, I guess we could just use google as an example um you know when Mateus duarte kind of came on the scene you know and he introduced this notion of material it had seemed very reactionary in the design world. It had seemed as almost as if it was playing, Google was playing catch up, mm -hmm. you know, to the likes of like uh, Apple or something. What do you think it is that a company can do to avoid reactions uh, in the discipline versus just having it baked in and then building it up similarly to like what Apple has been successful at doing. It's challenging because I think some companies have that in their DNA, you know, uh, with Apple, obviously Steve jobs, that was very a core part of his identity. It was understanding design and why it's important. Um, then you look at going back to the Google example, these are two very technical co-founders who value efficiency and speed 
and design at first was very much a secondary consideration, but eventually started to buy into it. And I think um, it's tough. I think part of it is just going to be this this fact, which we which we've talked about, that essentially design is is to some degree becoming commoditized. Like right, like almost any kind of app you create now is going to be on top of some sort of framework or um, you know design system. Maybe not a specific system for a specific app, but but it, a good interface is almost like table stakes these days. Like you're not going to go throw something out into, in front of users that's just you know that, that that's un, 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 unreadable, unusable. Those types of things are just commodities, really. So when you're talking about, I guess, um, the finer points of design and um, how do you build that into your brand? I, I don't know if there's one easy answer and it kind of depends on the type of product you're doing, but but I think having your leadership understand the this, this sort of strategic value of um, of having design being a part of the par- a part of your product team's process from the very beginning as opposed to something bolted on at the end, I think that's a good place to start. Yeah, well said. That makes a lot of sense. Well, then what what do you think like is what do you think are the minimum the minimum environmental conditions required for uh a sort of well-run, wholesome, sincere and impactful like design thinking process? The reason I ask this is is from the perspective of like the startup founder mm-hmm. who is just getting started, right? So they're oftentimes very resource constrained. Um, I think regardless of their uh, regardless of their actual social class, you could say that they're they're paying a poverty tax in the sense that like uh, their runway is, is so tight that they're mm-hmm. probably constantly thinking about it in a way that actually may like um, uh, obstruct clarity of thought, yeah. right? Um, and like, you know how you were saying, like, uh, the, that contrived process of, um, trying to find a problem to solve and going out to talk to a bunch of people and aggregating to see if like there's something there. Mm-hmm. Right. Which um, oftentimes just gets chalked up to, I want to be part of the design process, but it takes too damn long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because it does take a long time. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I mean, what, what do you think are the minimal conditions necessary? Let's say from sort of like the, the, the perspective of like a startup or a startup founder, to be able to like actually have like thoughtful design thinking, yeah, um, part of their process. Yeah, and I th- I think there's maybe something of a a misconception that design has to be super resource intense or take a lot of time or you know or you have to hire expensive people to help you with it. But if you look at like what Jake Knapp and others did it with at Google Ventures with Sprint. They, they really condense the process down into like a week-long thing that you can experiment with. So are you, you all familiar with the sprint book and sprint yeah, process? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, take a week, run an experiment. Um, yes, a week is valuable if you're a startup and you have limited runway, but it's not an exorbitant amount of time, especially if you're feeling like you're in an area where you're stuck or there's some sort of existential risk to the product that you're sort of on the verge of taking. I think that kind of approach where you're, you know, again, quickly building prototypes, getting feedback and input can be helpful um, and, and sort of show the value of design in a really tangible way. Um, there are other ways, I think, to, to build, you know, design into your into your team's process, but I, I think those little little steps can be a really, you know, easy way to just get started with it. Kind of taking a, a right turn here, but what gives you fulfillment these days in the, in the discipline? Because I don't, hmm. are I mean, are you still designing, or do you find yourself getting fulfillment from other places? Yes, so I still I still love making things, and though a lot of my work right now is as a podcaster, there's a lot of kind of design and experimentation and creation that happens along the way. So. Um, I think over time too, I've realized that I, I really enjoy writing. And so writing is part of my kind of creative fulfillment, creative endeavors. Um, you know, we have a newsletter and other written things along with the show script that I do. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, going back to like some of the AI tools we're talking about, I'm just having so much fun exploring all these things. I just did a talk here recently for creative mornings that was just sort of about 
what are all the, you know, all the fun things that you can do and experiment with, with these new tools that are on the way. And so, um, even, even, even things that are kind of mundane, like, um, I'm doing some consulting work and I just needed to track my time. And so I had chat GPT help me write a plugin for a calendar that just tracks time on this project, essentially, which is kind of stupid and silly, but it's like, that's fun. It's fun to make things, you know? And I think I, as it is, you know, I guess, I guess you could sort of loosely call that design, but really what gets me excited is just making things. Uh, And then to get even, even sillier, like I, I, I've gotten into like doing kind of elaborate Halloween costumes over the last few oh, years awesome. and I'm, I'm working i just finished or i'm finishing like i'm doing a viking costume with like a viking shield where i i watch this youtube video on this guy does it so silly stuff like that i enjoy and just kind of fulfills the creative itch okay what's the so, thi- I, so I, this explains I, the beard right yeah, <laughs> yeah i've been working on this for three years and then finally <laughs> i can have the costume <laughs> wait so okay and now i have i have many questions mm-hmm. around your uh your Halloween costume praxis. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, what what's the zaniest or, like, what's the wildest Halloween costume from the last, like, four or five years that, that you pulled off? Yeah, so it's funny. I, you know, having kids, and I, my oldest is 12 and my younger one's 8, and so in their early years, I didn't really dress up. You know, I just, I, we kind of dressed them up in cute costumes, and I didn't do it. But as they got older, I started to get more into it. I think my first sort of real costume invents in, in, <clears throat> investment was a pirate costume like four or five years ago. And that sort of built up over time. I made it more elaborate Then I switched over to last year was more of like a uh, night actually got chain mail, which is super freaking heavy <laughs> as you might imagine. <laughs> and I got, a, you know, yeah. So totally nerdy. And, you know, as someone who grew up playing like Dungeons and Dragons and things like that, I always had kind of a, a fascination with, with knights and armor and silly stuff like that. But, um, kind of fun to enact it in your, in your middle age. And, um, and, and also make stuff, like I said, with, with a Viking costume. So, okay. So do you like when you're in the blueprinting phase of putting the costume together, Mm -hmm. like, uh, it sounds like no matter what you're, you're going hard. It's just like, the, you know, is the question here, like, or is the way that you go hard, like you go into like the archives and try to understand, for example, mm. like were they using birch or ash for, right. for the shit planks or like, you know, like do I mean? you apply your design yeah. prowess to the costume making process. Yeah. Well, I try a bit. So let me see if I can show you a photo here. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if this is going to come up, but oh gosh, it's, Okay. So that's real decorated shield. Yeah. So I, I found some, you know, sketches of like a Celtic squid or something weird like that. And, um, I made the shield again. I looked at a YouTube video of some dude that makes Viking shields, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I looked at the historical accuracy, like how big were they actually? And like things like that, but I never get too, too crazy on the materials just because, you know, I don't want to like, spend hundreds of dollars unnecessarily on things that <laughs> I'm going to use for one day. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. It is kind of like a, it is a bit of a design outlet, a bit of a making outlet. Um, I like building stuff around the house too. So, um, a tree, tree fort built for the kids during the pandemic and some other things. But yeah, I think, you know, often I'm sure as you guys know, if we're, if we're kind of see ourselves as designers and makers and creators, it doesn't have to be a product that we're working on that gets us fired up. It can be other things too. So, yeah. You know, speaking of that, like, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this notion of, because I certainly believe this, you know, it's, it's not, it doesn't stop at just designing a product or an interface. I I'm actually a true believer that you can design relationships. Mm. You can design your character. You mm-hmm. can design questions the way that you think, you know, what else can you design? What are you designing today? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are so many, I mean, uh, the guy, one of the fellows I teach with wrote, is writing a series of books. The first one is called designing your life. And then he was designing your work life. And then there's another one he's working on at the moment, but I think you can essentially take a design approach to, you know, pretty much everything in your life. I think the one that I've used the most, if you're sort of like bucketing it out into like, 
understanding people and empathy and research and the prototyping and testing is, is like taking a prototyping approach where I will, if I'm interested in like shifting my career somewhere else, I would prototype it in a kind of small way and say, oh, this is interesting and then invest more in it. Teaching was an example of that where I knew that at some point I wanted to teach, but I thought, well, maybe it'd be closer to when I'm retired, but I should probably try it because I might, <laughs> I might hate it. And so I, I started as a coach in the program where I teach now, and I liked it enough, and they asked me to come, you know, help out more of the class as a lecturer. So, so sometimes I think, yeah, taking a designer's mindset of like, what's sort of like the minimum viable version of this that I can try and prototype has been helpful. I love that. Yeah, yeah. And so like, you're getting ready, you're, you're getting ready to go out and surf. So I got to ask the question, mm. like, do you... Do you see any connection between what you describe as your lifelong ocean worship and the design process? Hmm. Yes, I think, you know, paying attention and just sort of be prepared for the unknown, essentially. Those are two things. Uh, you, if, you're, if you're surfing, and I also, you know, free dive, but you have to be pretty aware of your surroundings there's there's you know there's some amount of hazard involved and certainly if you want to be an okay surfer you have to kind of know how to predict like where to be where to position yourself um and also sort of be obviously aware of the environmental conditions and forecasting and things like that so it's just, so just paying attention to things and being observant that certainly carries over um and then there's a lot of unknowns involved in in these things like you know, is it going to, where is it going to be good today? Like I, I might go out, it might be terrible. It might be great, but just being kind of open to the unknown and unexpected and serendipity. Um, I think that's also helpful when you're designing things too, because inevitably there's gonna be challenges thrown your way that you didn't expect. Totally. I mean, one of the things I think about that like is a principle I often find across many different disciplines where, uh, design is noticeable um or its absence is noticeable let's say uh is uh knowing your material hmm. um hmm. i think when you describe like you know surfing um or free diving both cases right it's like it's not just like knowing what ocean is like <laughs> right mm -hmm. but like you know the time of the day like what what's the tide like um uh how deep is the water i mean so many different things i'm not a surfer so obviously like you can tell this is sort of like i don't know the 30 words for snow <laughs> but uh but like if you're gonna design it or you're gonna interface with it you have to right um and this was a thing that we we actually saw uh in our days at clara where like um uh we would see these like designs come up that maybe didn't um, have full awareness of uh, the limitations with the React library at the time mm -hmm. um, and the things that were possible for React to like sort of uh, uh, pull off with, with the way that it manipulated objects in the DOM um, that were trivial to pull off with mobile native, right? Um, so I, I don't know. That's the other thing I'd say is like, yeah, knowing your material seems like a, a, a big deal when you're designing or surfing. Yeah, knowing the medium, the material, uh, being open to serendipity being curious all, all important i always find it fascinating when um you know i i grew up as a, ca a camp counselor you know for several years and it was always interesting whenever i was teaching like the arts and crafts uh class because it was everyone's favorite class mm -hmm. right that and recess was everyone's like favorite period <laughs> that's my son's favorite yeah recess yeah <laughs> <laughs> so like a, you know Johnny Ive, John Maida, you know, Alan Dye, like these are like serious pros, right? Like they're they're going to have their own definition of what design is to them today, right? How how are you teaching it to your kids? Hmm. You know, because I would imagine that, you know, with you as their father, it's a very different interpretation of design versus like, you know, a muggle child, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh I kind of consider myself a muggle in many ways, but I think um, that I don't really talk to them too much specifically about design, but I do really encourage creativity. And like you said, just playing and like drawing and my, my daughter's really taking it up. Like she's, she draws a ton. She makes things. She, when she was younger, a little younger and, and still a bit, but she made these amazing like 
little like miniature clay figurines like a like a like a furniture set the size of a dime you know there's like how do you how do you have the fine motor control to make these little <laughs> objects it's amazing uh and my son dash he's kind of into it but he's also he it just goes to show you how kids even if you raise them in sort of similar environments will turn out very different dash and this might we might have known this by naming him dash but he's very very physical running around all the place you know he loves playing wall ball at school it's inevitably the thing that he talks about that was his favorite part of the day so he's less i mean i guess he's he's creative in his own way he loves his color and sketch and stuff but i don't see him maybe as invested in that as phoebe is that's okay to me i don't want to force my kids in any certain direction i want them to have the opportunity to try that and to you know just and also because i see is that that's sort of part of our human future really lies in our creativity and our our human touch even if we do have kind of an ai helper but um but yeah i don't have a i don't have a specific rubric or syllabus for for uh you know getting them in a, in, a, in a direction that i want them to go i just want them to be able to try a lot of different things i would yeah and i i had an inkling that you were going to say you just try to encourage their creativity which leads me to my next question is like well, how do you teach an adult how to be creative? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what advice would you have for people that are design curious? Mm -hmm. A big part of it is just getting over the fear and, and developing, you know, my, my advisor and guy I look up to a lot in our program, Dave Kelly, he wrote this whole book called creative confidence, which if you're in that space and you're curious about design, but have a little like feel that you aren't creative, it's a good it's a good read because, you know, like, like you said, Harrison, the, the kids that you teach, everybody, all the kids, almost indefinitely, almost without exception are there drawing and painting and making things with clay. Like there's nobody like standing the side saying, ah, I don't get this or this is boring or I'm afraid to do this up to a certain age at which point they become more self-conscious and certain kids get identified as creative and some don't. And that sort of reinforces itself, unfortunately, through our education system, which I think has a lot of inherent problems with it. But the creative kids get separated out from the non-creative ones, and all of a sudden you find yourself self-identifying as a not not a creative person. When we sure, all yeah. started out in a you know very creative place to to begin with. So uh, yeah, I, I think part of it, it's less about becoming creative and more about regaining the creative sort of freedom that you had as a kid and understanding that, look, um, Picasso, you know, as much as he's regarded as, as this, you know, master artist, it took him hundreds of thousands of works to get to where he is. Yeah. If you look at his painting yeah. repertoire, it's something like 14,000 paintings, a hundred thousand pieces overall. And only a fraction of those were really considered masterpieces. Right. So a big part of being creative is just creating a big volume of things. And it's not going to be great to begin with. It's going to suck for the most part when you're just getting started. That's okay. That's part of the process. And part of the goal should just be uh, enjoying the process for its own sake. So it's almost like putting yourself in a position as an adult where you're, you have to explore your own creativity. It's almost like reparenting yourself in a way mm -hmm. you know, to kind of like unlock that inner child. And I think like a lot of the founders that we speak to, you know, day in and day out, like they struggle with that, mm -hmm. you know, they struggle. And I think it's very, it's something that kind of eats them up inside because they look at maybe where their startup started, you know, where it got its start from. And they ask themselves like, well, how can I get that innovation back? How can I get that creativity back? How can I like stimulate my imagination to think along those lines again? And, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what would like what would your reaction be to that problem? You know, if you're if you're talking to a founder and they were talking that way, like what would be your reaction to that? So the problem they're coming with is like I I've lost my creativity or I, I feel like I've never been creative or Yeah. I, they were put into a bucket, like you said. Yeah. You know, maybe like twelve, thirteen. I'm not a designer. Yeah. I'm not a designer. Yeah. Um yeah, I, I think it just comes down to just trying, just trying things. And it doesn't have to be directly related to what you're working on at work either. It can be 
you know, other creative endeavors. If, if you wanted to like learn an instrument, if you wanted to you know, paint watercolors, just to, just to try it, like trying, trying different forms of creativity will kind of inevitably open up that space in your brain to think of yourself as more creative. So yeah, it can, it, it can be work related. It can be related to what you're doing uh, with your startup or your product, but I'd say it's also probably equally valuable to try it in, in other arenas and then you can bring it back to what you're doing. I wonder, yeah. So just trying, mm -hmm. you know, and creating volume. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a, a beautiful end note. If you ask me, like, <laughs> I don't know, uh, Eli, is there, is there anything else that you wish that the type of people who get into entrepreneurship and get into startups, you wish they heard like a message that you would like want to leave them with? I'm trying to get beyond anything cheesy, like make the world a better place. <laughs> and my mind flashes back to like HBO Silicon Valley. And totally. it was like Gavin Belson saying like, I don't want to be in a world where somebody else makes the world a better place than we do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know what that last year, but you know, I, um, I, I think one thing to take away is just there's, there's value in making stuff for other people and there's value in caring about what you're doing when you're making things for other people. Um, my co-host and I just recorded this episode. Uh, that's, it was kind of a, a new experiment, a sponsored episode for this brand, America giant happened to be wearing their shirt and they're mm -hmm. the really interesting company where they, their values, I think are, are very aligned with what they do. They're trying to bring back manufacturing to, you know, small, smaller towns in America. And, um, they, the, in the course of the conversation, um, my co-host Aaron and I were talking about this book called Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. And there's this idea there about quality and kind of caring, yeah, caring <laughs> about what you do, um, in a deep sense and understanding that there's, there's kind of a responsibility that you take in making something and, and getting, giving it out to the world. So yeah, I think caring, caring about what you do, caring about quality, those are important things for founders to think about. Very true. Thank you so much for coming on. Like, we know you're a super busy guy. Like, it, it, this is such a treat. And um, yeah, just thank you for your time, man. Yeah, we're so grateful that we got to talk to you. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I appreciate you having me here. And hopefully it's uh, helpful to your guests, for your guests, hopefully to your audience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely.